Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6, starting with verse 45, and we'll be reading through verse 56. That is Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 45. Now, where we come, a little bit of context, where we come in this particular passage is just on the hills of Jesus' feeding the 5,000, this very famous event that occurs in all the Gospels. It's very important for us to, to see this. Uh, but where we pick up now is just after that, and what did we see before? Jesus has fed this you know, incredible group. He's done this very uh, Old Testament um, illusion, echo, picture, tapestry, however you want to word it, uh, of, of being upon this mountain surrounded by a bunch of Israelites in the wilderness, and he feeds them with bread from heaven. He's painting a very distinct picture for us, uh, and in a not-so-subtle way, declaring who he is. And yet, the disciples leave going, who is this guy? What's he doing here? And what Mark really wants us to see at this point, what he wants us to see today, is not only... Does Jesus reveal who he is in the midst of our desperation, as we saw last week? But also, Jesus reveals himself to us in the midst of our frustration. We're about to take up and read God's word, but before we do, let us ask for the Lord's help in prayer. Gracious Lord, we live in a deeply frustrating and broken world. And oftentimes, we're so confused by our frustrations. We need a compass. We need a guide. We need hope, oh Lord. And so we pray this day that you would give us eyes to see our greatest hope of all, the face of Christ our King. Give us ears to hear his voice and hearts to know his word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of our Lord from Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave from them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when he saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When he had crossed over, they came to the land of Gensaret, moored there to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. And ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. 
And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch him, even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. That is the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. May he add his blessing to the reading and preaching of it. So what Mark wants us to see today is that the Lord, in his divine providence, will not only use desperate situations to show Jesus to his people, but actually probably even more commonly, the way that the Lord uses life and providence to show us who Christ is, is actually in the midst of our deepest frustrations. And that's not always the most exciting news. The Lord is going to use some of the most frustrating times in your life to show you exactly who he is. And that's his common practice. So in this particular text, we'll see five different movements. Five different movements. They all end in I-N-G and somewhat rhyme. Therefore, you know that they're true. And the first one that we see is Jesus' scheming. We see this in verse 45 and following. Jesus opens up and the text says, Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat. This is a, a very particular word here in the Greek that's not very often used, and it's, there's almost like a forcibleness to it. He's, he's forcing them to get into the boat. They've just fed the 5,000. This has happened, and he's about to dismiss the crowds, and he looks to his disciples, and he says, get in that boat right now. And you can probably imagine them going, but you just... We just watched you feed this massive group of people, and now you're going to like make us get on the boat and go to the other side, and you're going to dismiss 5,000 people. And like, What's going on here? There's deep, strong intentionality, and the reason is because Jesus has a plan. He forces them on the boat because he has a plan. He's going to stick them in the middle of a storm. It's exciting to be a disciple of Jesus, isn't it? He forces you on a boat, and he sticks you in the middle of a storm. But, you know, it, it's interesting. What's this plan? It's not all sunshine and rainbows. He, he's sticking them in the middle of the storm, and in putting them there, um, he's doing something very intentional. Now, Jesus has already uh, calmed a storm back in chapter 4, and this seems to be a little bit more of a life-threatening situation. There's, there's just very violent language of, you know, the boat sinking and all, and all of that. When we turn to this one, though, it doesn't seem like it's quite so life-threatening. It just seems more frustrating than anything. We, we see that in particular in verse 48. And he saw them... They, they were making headway painfully, or maybe a little bit more literally translated, torturously. It, it's the, the picture of, of, of like strong suppression, almost a beating. They're, they're taking you know, one stroke and being pushed back two, and, and they're, they're just constantly trying to get somewhere, and they can't get anywhere. The elements are constantly pushing against them. It's not life-threatening. It's really just a royal pain that they're in. Here's maybe some good news. The storms Jesus will usually bring us to are not storms of desperation, but more storms of frustration. It might be good news, perhaps, that uh, 
Jesus isn't always going to bring us to life situations, like life and death sorts of situations. Day after day, you're living on the very edge of the knife, and it could all fall apart at any moment. More often than not, the situations that Jesus brings his people to are places a lot like this storm, where you're just trying to make some headway, but at the end of the day, you get pushed back twice as far as you tried to push forward. Here's some bad news. In the midst of that sort of storm, you're probably going to miss Jesus. Which is exactly what we see here. Jesus puts them in this situation, and he's going to constantly show up. That's the good news. But in the midst of their frustration, just like you and me, they're going to miss Jesus. Here's our call today. In the midst of your frustration, don't miss Jesus. In the midst of the frustrating, back-breaking, royal pain of a storm that you're in, don't miss Jesus. But we continue on. Here's some good news. Uh, the second movement, uh, we've seen Jesus' scheming. Now we look at Jesus' seeing. Uh, Jesus dismisses the crowd, and after that, he, he lets them go. And the, the text says that he goes up on the mountain to pray. Again, there's, there's a strong echo here to especially the Old Testament uh, and Exodus in particular. He's doing this very mosaic thing. He goes up on a mountain, likely, we can probably assume, to pray. But what's he praying for? Well, while the text doesn't tell us explicitly, it's highly likely that he goes up to pray for his disciples who are in a tough spot that he's just put them in. Sometimes we forget the reality that, that Jesus is actually praying for us, don't we? That's a, that's a biblical truth that probably most Christians know if you've just done a cursory read of the Bible, and yet that's one of the most difficult truths to take to heart, isn't it? But the text continues on. Verse 48, And he, that is Jesus, saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. There's another strong echo here. Mark is, is doing a, a, a literary thing of constantly just putting in little whispers to say, turn back in the book. You've, you've seen this before. Here Jesus is, and you know he's up on top of a mountain. How is he looking out on sea? It's likely that this is some sort of supernatural seeing, which is precisely, I think, what fits with the text. And it's actually pointing back to Exodus chapter 2, where Israel has been sold to slavery. They're there in the midst of Egypt. They've been enslaved now for generations, and they cry out to God. And it's this incredible text you know, that God saw their pain. He saw their slavery. He heard their cries. He remembered the covenant. And then the chapter ends this way. And God knew. That's an amazing comfort. If you can take it to heart, if you can see Jesus in the midst of your frustration, of the God who sees and the God who knows one of probably the main reasons perhaps why you're struggling to see Jesus right now is because you don't think he sees you or knows you 
or understands you, but he does. Time and time again, like the beauty of the incarnation is that he's acquainted with our sorrows. The author of Hebrews makes the same case that that he is one who's a sympathetic high priest. He's been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. This is, this is the God who ever lives to make intercession on our behalf and who's able to say, I know what it is, not only to be desperate, but also, and just think about the life of Jesus, I know what it is to be frustrated. I know what it is to feel stuck. I know what it is to feel burdened. And yet I make your case and ever live to do so. Hear that call of Jesus to bring your frustrations, not your, just your desperations, but your frustrations to his very feet. But next, and we, this is where it kind of the, the, one of the climactic moments of the text, Jesus is revealing. So it, Jesus goes out and he's, he's praying and he sees them. And how does Jesus seek to reveal himself? In one of the strangest ways possible, by walking on the sea. Very famously. Verse 48. At about the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. Now, you know, Jesus probably isn't doing this because he can. Maybe he is. But more likely what Jesus is doing is he's seeking to demonstrate a reality. And we've actually seen it already today. He's seeking to demonstrate the reality that he's Yahweh. He's the creating covenant Lord. We saw it back in Job chapter 9. What did Job say that the Lord does? He treads on the waves. The book of Psalms will pick up the same sort of theme of the God who treads over the seas. Habakkuk chapter 3, contrasting the idols that we make is the God who walks across the sea. Jesus is being very intentional here and walking on the sea, coming to them and saying, behold, the creator God who walks by his people. Now, this is one of the more interesting parts of the text, though. I mean, if you're, if you're not at least somewhat caught off guard by Jesus walking on the, on the sea, Really, the next clause should be the most perplexing. Jesus is walking on the sea, into verse 48. He meant to pass them by. If you didn't catch that before, that's, that seems like an awkward way for Jesus to be. He's just casually taking a walk on the sea and spots them, and he intends to pass them by. This probably isn't exactly what, what students do uh, whenever they see their teachers in public, they, they seek to, to pass them by. They hide and walk away. Or maybe uh, for the rest of you, um, it's not what we do whenever we find that one uh, somewhat dreaded coworker who is most certainly going to, to quickly induce some sort of secondhand embarrassment. We can call him Michael Scott, and you, you're out in public, and, and you see him or them, and you gather together as a family to make a plan of exiting as quickly as possible and maybe invoking some sort of foe 
emergency situation just so you don't have to have the awkward conversation with the guy that's going to say something weird. So you hide yourself and you seek to pass right by them. This isn't what Jesus is doing at all. This is actually, again, another deeply intentional aspect of this text. He seeks to pass them by. This is what is called an epiphany. Not the epiphany of like, oh, epiphany. Um, But an actual epiphany. This is what God does with Moses on Sinai. The back of God passes by them. This is what God does with Elijah. The presence of God passed by him. But there's also another echo from Job chapter 9. God passes by and we see him not. They were too caught up in the midst of their frustration that even in that, they fail to see the reality of what's going on. Jesus seeks to pass them by because he's God in the flesh. In the midst of their frustration, Jesus offers the disciples an opportunity not to just have the back of God pass by them, but actually to see God face to face. You as well have this opportunity today. Don't miss it. The God who constantly shows up and lives to make himself known to his people, who shows up this day in this place right now and says, Behold, the word and the presence and the fellowship of God himself. But, see, the contrast We've seen Jesus' revealing, but now we look at the disciples reeling. What do the disciples do? The disciples don't see who Jesus is. In fact, they think he's a ghost. They look up, they think he's a ghost, they cry out, they all saw him, and we're all deeply, deeply terrified. It's so interesting that here they are, they've been fed bread from heaven, They have every reason to see Jesus for who he truly is, and they still don't get it. The constant recurring question, really, of the first half of Mark up until about this point is, who is this Jesus? And time and time again, the answer is obvious, but the disciples miss it, and oftentimes so do we. Jesus shows up time and time again. He speaks to us by his word. He speaks to us by his sacrament. He speaks to us by the ways that he works providentially in our lives. And yet, what do we see? Maybe a ghost. Maybe that's what you see today. You think of Jesus, you're here today, and what is he really? Something more of a relic from your past. Maybe you're here because you were raised in a good Christian home in Columbia, Tennessee, Meemaw brought you to church, and it's a good thing to do, but all Jesus really is is a relic in your closet. Don't miss the face of Jesus. But, interestingly enough, too, what does Jesus do? Even with those who simply see Jesus as a ghost, he keeps showing up. What a patient God. The people who fail to see the obvious the Lord keeps showing up. And this is kind of evidenced even with the next section. After they crossed over, they, they go to this region and people are gathering around. And it seems like 
the word has gotten around that you can just touch the garment of this man and be healed. And so what do people do? They show up not to see Jesus, but to receive healing. How many of us are just showing up because we think today we'll leave feeling better? Maybe there's some bad news. I just told you that Jesus is going to make you really frustrated. And yet, what does Jesus do even in the midst of that for people who are seeking to get what they can out of Jesus? Jesus constantly shows up. In the midst of their frustration and in the midst of ours, Jesus is the God who is there and he isn't silent. And he makes his face known to his people. But then finally, we see the last section of this text, the last movement. Jesus is ceasing. He arrives on the scene, verse 50. They're terrified, but immediately he speaks to them and says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus, also in this text, makes a little pun that sometimes our texts miss. He says, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Here again, Exodus chapter 3. I am who I am, says the Lord Yahweh. Jesus has the same word upon his lips. Now, regularly, this is a pretty normal greeting of, you know, identifying a person, but it's pretty clear here that Jesus is being intentional whenever he says he is who he is. That the creator God is standing right before his people saying, I'm here for you. I put you in this storm because I want you to see me but now I'm going to do something else with the storm. And so not only does Jesus reveal the very nature who he is, but verse 51, he gets into the boat, and the wind ceased. The storm stopped. It's another very intentional word that Mark uses here. We only see it a couple times in the scope of Scripture, particularly in the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. Two places it shows up in Genesis 8, chapter 8, where the flood of Noah takes place, and it says that the waters abated or ceased. And then again in Numbers chapter 17, verse 13, the plagues were taking place, and suddenly they cease. Jesus gets into the boat, and the chaos, and the disorder, and maybe even the frustration dissipates and goes away. Now, oftentimes, the way this text gets applied is somewhat misapplied. They say, you know, just believe in Jesus and all your storms will stop. Wrong. Believe in Jesus and you'll probably have some extra storms. It's likely that following Jesus, you'll be more frustrated than Sisyphus rolling his rock up the hill, only to have it come rolling back down. But here's the glorious hope of the gospel, that if you find yourself in Sisyphus's shoes rolling a rock up the hill, Jesus is showing you something. And more than that, the ceasing taking place here is pointing to this glorious reality That while the storms and life's frustrations are guaranteed for all, but especially the Christian, this isn't forever. And Jesus is calming the storm and revealing himself. And Jesus doing what Jesus does is pointing to this glorious reality. He's making all things new. 
that yes, this life is frustrating. There's no doubt about it, and there's no reason not to be honest with ourselves. But here's also another truth. Jesus is going to wipe away every frustration. Jesus is going to reign with his people forever. Jesus is going to right every wrong. Jesus is going to make the winds of chaos cease. Jesus is going to bring in a new heavens and a new earth and dwell with his people forever. And so, brothers and sisters, while you may be living in the most frustrating time of your life, I plead with you, in the everyday, in the ordinary, in the frustrations, see the very face of Jesus who will calm the waters. Let us go to him now in prayer. Our gracious and sovereign Lord, who is like you, who not only creates the sea and treads on the waves, but calms them with your very presence. Lord, how frustrated we could be sitting in Job's shoes without an arbiter, without a mediator, with no hope of justice. Yet, O oh Lord, you have revealed our deepest hope that we do have a mediator and we do have a king who not only has created all things by his word, but upholds all things by his word and is making all things new by his word. And so, Lord, we rejoice even in the midst of our frustrations, knowing that you bring us to yourself. And here at this table, O oh God, you invite us into a place where the winds cease and the waves stop and the plagues go away. And so, Lord, may we fellowship and commune with Christ now and rest in his boat and have our hearts healed for he's the God who shows up in the midst of our frustration. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.